This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello and welcome to Maddox on the Mic. You're listening to Season 2 of Watchdog, where we will be discussing the ACCC's leading cases for 2022 and how well they performed against what they said they were going to do in 2022-2023. And we're going to be focused particularly on the um, retail and consumer market space, uh, talking also about unfair contract terms and uh, spending a little bit of time, if we can, on consumer guarantees. My name is Sean Tenby. I'm a partner in the Dispute Resolution and Litigation team at Maddox, and I'm also editor of our annual publication, the ACCC Year in Review. Joining me today for our episode with focusing on retail and franchising is Maddox partner Greg Hipwell and consultant Fiona Wallwork. Greg is a corporate and commercial lawyer who is regarded as one of Australia's leading retail and franchise lawyers, holding more than 20 years of experience practicing within the sector. Fiona, on the other hand, has extensive experience providing advice to businesses in the consumer market sector, including manufacturers, retailers, franchisors, and other service providers. Welcome to the show, Greg and Fiona. Thanks, Thanks, Sean. So let's dive straight into it. Um, Let's talk about unfair contract terms. Uh, It's been a focus of government for quite some time. There's been a a heavy emphasis on strengthening the existing unfair contract terms regime for standard form contracts, uh, possibly over the last five years. But those reforms have been very slow to be implemented by government. Fiona, maybe you can comment with the election of the new government earlier this year. Has there been any progress with the introduction of legislation to update the regime? Yeah, sure. You're certainly right. Um, There has been some changes. After many years of discussion and review, the uh, federal government introduced the UCT reform bill to Parliament on the 28th of September, which has now been passed by both houses and received royal assent just last week on the 9th of November. Um, The passing of this legislation affirms the government's commitment to significantly strengthen the unfair contract terms protections for small businesses and consumers, which is very much in line with the ACCC's focus in this area. And so what, Fiona, what will those reforms uh, to the unfair contract terms laws mean for business? Uh, yeah, the amending legislation substantially overhauls existing laws. Uh, the reforms are very extensive and include, firstly, widening the application of the UCT protections to a far broader range of small businesses with some commentary now estimating that about 99% of all Australian businesses will fall within the extended definition of a small business and therefore have the protections of the UCT law regime. Uh, Secondly, there's the removal of the upfront uh, contract price thresholds to capture many more contracts. So we see the laws now covering a much wider range of small businesses and a much wider range of actual of contracts. Yeah, these really aren't uh, just business to consumer or small business laws anymore, are they? What uh, what other changes have we seen with this new legislation? Yeah, well, thirdly, there's another very significant change. The laws um, have extended the protections to 
prohibit um, not only just the the uh, reliance on an unfair contract term, but also the inclusion of an unfair contract term in the contract. So you don't need to show that it's, there's, it's been relied on, it's just its mere existence uh, which can fall foul of the, the laws. And lastly, very importantly, there's been the introduction of significant civil penalties for contraventions of the laws, which are now in line with penalties for other contraventions of the ACL. Previously, the only recourse was to have the unfair contract term declared void and unenforceable. Now, uh, there is the ability for the federal court to impose penalties for the inclusion or reliance on any of these unfair contract terms, which I suspect will bring the importance of these laws to the forefront of many businesses. Yeah, I mean, these changes, particularly the penalties, are really significant. We, uh, we in fact, publish an article on that exact topic earlier this month. Um, and I mean, the interesting thing about penalties is that when these laws were mooted, it was in the context of the old penalty regime. I'm sure most of our listeners would be familiar with the $10 million penalty for corporations, etc. But the government seems to have slipped these reforms through with the introduction of much higher penalties. So what should businesses be doing now in readiness for the introduction of these reforms? Yeah, you're right. Um, look, the laws the reforms of the laws have got a 12 month grace period so they don't actually affect and don't come into effect until the uh, 9th of November 2023 so there is some time for businesses to get themselves into order uh we su suspect that a lot of businesses you know have already done a lot of work on their um contracts and terms and conditions a few years ago when the laws were first introduced but i really do think it's important that businesses revisit their contracts and terms and conditions, et cetera, are uh, in, in line with the new laws, especially having regard to the fact that the laws um, do capture a much wider range of contracts and people or businesses that will be uh, given the protections of the new laws. And obviously as well, because of the uh, significant uh, penalties that now apply. And lastly, there's been a couple of cases in this area recently, which again show the ACCC's real focus on this area in terms of prosecuting companies that have included unfair contract terms in their legislation. So I think it's a very important area that businesses need to be across and start you know, considering carefully uh, what they need to do to address these laws. And there have been a number of cases since this regime was first introduced um, to business-to-business -business contracts. But what, what have the recent cases shown? You know, what, what, what can our clients and our listeners learn from some of the recent decisions? Can you comment on any of those? Yeah, there actually has been a two very recent decisions, um, both ACCC prosecutions, firstly of Fujifilm, which was determined in August this year, and also uh, Max Gaming, which was in September this year. Both of these matters related to unfair terms in small business contracts, so B2B contracts rather than B2C contracts. And it's interesting to look at the kind of terms that were found to be unfair contract terms. Um, these included terms that provided for automatic renewal of the contract unless the customer gave notice of termination, but without an obligation on the supplier to notify the customer of when renewal was due. Uh, terms that gave the supplier the unilateral right to vary contract charges payable by the buyer. And it was considered that the insertion of the word reasonable in that term did not sort of reduce the inherent unfairness of that term. So you do often see 
you know, businesses throwing in the word reasonable here and there, thinking that's going to fix the problem. But certainly, and that was in the case of Fujifilm, that wasn't that wasn't uh, sufficient. Uh, courts also looked at terms that allowed the supplier to terminate the contract in a far wider wider range of circumstances than those that were allowed to the customer. Those sorts of terms were considered to be unfair. Uh, terms that required payment of exit fees on termination of the contract, especially in circumstances where no reciprocal refund was given to the uh, consumer for sort of upfront um, payments that they might have made. And lastly, terms that uh, were unreasonable or one-sided limitation of liability. Uh, those sorts of clauses, again, are considered to be unfair contract terms. And there are many, many contracts which have just got one-sided liability and limitation clauses all in favour of the supplier, especially yeah. when you see contracts coming out of, you know, overseas from the US, etc. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the Fuji decision where the court rejected um, the use of the word reasonable as providing any, you know, uh, balance between the parties. I mean, Greg, is that something that you've seen with, you know, some of your clients approaching you to review contract terms? Do, do they regard reasonable as a panacea? Um, I think this this particular sort of set of legislation, legal regime, I think people are still struggling to get their minds around it. I mean, it, it's, it's actually quite far reaching now and the penalties are quite severe. Um, I still think there is a um, a sense that a lot of the clauses that we as lawyers might look at and, you know, in the under the sort of um, guidance of the legislation and say, well, that's potentially an unfair contract term. I think clients are, are really struggling to see how some of these terms that they've been used to for a lot of years um, might be unfair, you know, with or without the use of the term reasonable. So I think there's yeah. some danger, still some danger of complacency. And my fear is that that there's going to be a number of, businesses out there that get um, get fined or, or fall foul of this legislation because they, not that they haven't taken it seriously enough, but they they just really have can't get their mind conceptually around that some of these clauses that they've been used to for years and years are in fact unfair. And, and what really resonates with me when I'm listening to Fiona give um, this this summary is, is, you know, what does this mean for, for franchisors and franchise agreements? We, we've been through a process, you know, over the last few years now of reviewing a lot of our clients franchise agreements, considering the impact of the unfair contract terms legislation, you know, on the understanding that a lot of um, franchise agreements are going to be caught. Um, but I'm not sure that we've gone far enough when you, when you, Fuji Films case, um, yeah. I, you know, franchise agreements are inherently one-sided. There's the ability to change operations manuals. There's the ability to change, you know, pricing of products. Um, it is of some concern. I mean, I'm I'm not sure really um, how far franchisors or, or other suppliers can go to sort of strictly, not so much strictly comply, but but if if you, if you, if you took this very literally, it it would leave you in a very exposed position commercially. Yeah, and it's fascinating when you think that it's fifty million now per breach. That's one of the penalty options that's available, rather than ten million per breach. Fuji had over 30 clauses that were regarded as offending the legislation. I'm assuming that is 30 breaches. It might then be 30 breaches across every contract. If they had 200 contracts, I mean, we did the math. It was nearly $2 billion in potential penalties. Now, while, you know, that's a theoretical yeah. penalty, would yeah. never be applied. I mean, that's really significant when there are such questions around what an unfair term looks like. 
particularly as you say, Greg, in franchising? I think it's interesting when you look at um, the clause for automatic renewal of the contract, and that was found to be an unfair contract term. I mean, that could work in the reverse. A, a, a business or a consumer could lose the benefit of a contract because it didn't automatically renew when they may have been under the assumption that the, the contract was going to be ongoing. Yeah. Um, so It's all in the eye of the beholder in some exactly. respects, which is the problem with this legislation. And uh, it was problematic when penalties were $10 million, and now that they're $50 million, uh, it just multiplies the problem. Well, look, why don't we turn to franchising? Um, I see that UltraTurn is back in the press for contraventions of the franchising code, which is somewhat unbelievable. Fiona, can you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, it is slightly unbelievable. Um, as I think most of probably where the um, in 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 uh, 2019, um, Tomb was subject to various court orders, which restrained them for contravening the franchising code of conduct. Um, and those restraints related to a number of things, but included um, ensuring that they provided marketing fund statements and and um, or prepare them and, and provide them to the network within the franchise code required timeframe. And it was quite a big matter at the time, and and, and Ultra Chooses was uh, penalised substantially for that failure and non-compliance with the code, as well as other non-compliance issues. And, and they were part, yeah quite quite significant in the way the decision was received by the franchising sector because it really lifted the standard of compliance. It was a big deal at the time, wasn't it? Oh, it was a huge deal. And following that, you know, franchisors looked at it carefully and made changes to their own procedures, um, documentation that provide to the network, et cetera, so sort of following their UltraTunes decision to make sure that they didn't sort of land themselves into hot water as well. Dita just spoke to someone yesterday about UltraTunes and re-examining that decision and making sure that we were we were strictly complying and, and providing the information required. So I and guess so what what's happening? I mean, given how significant it is, it's surprising that everyone's paid attention to it except potentially, allegedly, UltraTunes. What what's happening in the current proceedings? Yeah, so funnily enough, um earlier this year, um and around June this year, the uh, contempt of court proceedings were filed against Altitudes, basically for engaging in exactly the same conduct. They forgot or failed or didn't provide in time uh, the marketing fund financial statements to the network. Um, whether they just couldn't be bothered or, or they just forgot or whether they weren't ready in time, it's not really sure at the moment. But yet again, they found they haven't complied with those important franchise code requirements to comply marketing fund statements or sorry to prepare them uh within you know sort of four months at the end of the year and provide them to the network um within yeah. that period of time as well so significant non-compliance and we see ultrachins now facing contempt of court proceedings yeah and i mean what do you think is this surprising that ultrachins has found itself in this situation and are there any key takeaways for for franchise systems for other franchise systems yeah i think it is surprising that ultrachins found themselves in this situation you know back in 2019 the commissioner was very severe in her condemnation of ultrachins for their repeated failure to do it so it's very surprising that you know less than three years later we find themselves in this same position I think, you know, franchisors should really learn from this and realise, you know, the ACCC doesn't let these things slide. Uh, they are on top of compliance. They're watching franchisors 
all the time to make sure they comply with um, the franchise code. I think in particular with marketing funds, this seems to be now a real focus for the Commission. Um, I'd be, you know, ensuring as a franchisor that you're very much aware of your um, franchise code obligations in terms of, you know, uh, looking after marketing funds, administering marketing funds, getting the financial statements prepared, ensuring the sufficient detail is there, ensuring sufficient disclosure is made in the disclosure document about the marketing fund expenditure, and obviously, importantly, making sure that the financial um, statements that are prepared are provided to the network. They have to be provided to the network, and I still think sometimes that's often overlooked as well. Yeah, I mean, the franchise sector has been a heavy focus for the ACCC for a number of years, particularly coming out of the Senate inquiry into fairness in franchising. And Greg, you'll remember there was an entire chapter devoted to retail food group and a whole lot of allegations made um, about uh, that company. It took some time for the commission to bring action, any kind of court action against retail food group. Can you can you give us an update on where that case is up to and 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 you know what what the allegations are that are actually before the court? It seems to be going uh, very slow, Sean. Um, the most recent thing to have occurred is there was a decision by Justice Katzman in the federal court in relation to an, an interlocutory, an interlocutory um, application by the ACCC. And so there was a decision, I think, on the 19th of August this year. Um, and there was orders made um, to progress the claims by the ACCC against Retail Food Group. Um, and those claims allege that the that retail food group as the franchisor is engaged in unconscionable conduct and made false or misleading representations in its dealings with franchisees in breach of the Australian consumer law. Yeah. Um, in particular, the ACCC has alleged that retail food groups acted unconscionably and engaged in false, misleading and deceptive conduct when it sold uh, or licensed 42 loss-making corporate stores to incoming franchisees between 2015 and 2019. And there's also another separate claim in that case involving allegations in relation to the franchisor's use of the marketing funds. Yeah, I mean, those are serious matters, but also quite complicated. You've got, you know, 42 separate transactions, potentially 42 separate, um, you know, purchases, franchisees, licensees um, over a four year period. How's the court planning to deal with all those claims and all those parties uh, over such a long period of time? Well, as you know from our recent experience, you know, trying to hear, you know, something like 42 separate claims as part of a group claim by franchisees, because this idea that it's a class action and it's all the same claim is, is a bit of a misnomer. So it seems reading between the lines that RFG approached the ACCC and said, well, let's, let's take a common sense approach to this matter. Let's pick out uh, a series of example franchisees or exemplar franchisees, and let's run the substantive legal matters based on that smaller group of um, franchisees and from memory the H, the sorry R, rfg was suggesting sort of five to eight exemplar franchisees to run the substantive case in relation to uh, surprisingly the ACCC pushed back on that and this was the subject of the intellectual interlocutory hearing um, before um, um, justice justice katzman um, the ACCC were insisting that there be 42 separate hearings in relation to, well, one hearing dealing with each of the 42 separate claims by each of the 42 claiming franchisees and wow. retail food group just said, well, that, that that's going to effectively, you know, potentially cause us um, a huge amount of detriment. The, the financial 
cost and the resources required to oh, run the that distraction to the business you can just imagine yeah it, look in, in any event um common sense prevailed from the from the judge's perspective and um he she made an order that um there would be the case the substantive legal uh, issues would be determined by a reference sample of 14 out of the 47 stores yeah um well, and you know she said that the purpose of 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 this of her decision was to promote the overarching purpose of the civil practice and procedure provisions to reduce inefficiencies and contain costs so what rfg was saying made a lot of sense i mean the, the resources yeah. to run 42 or 40 separate uh, seven separate claims would would just be um a it would take probably a number of years and b the cost would be prohibitive so um it, it was actually good to see the judge come out and say well let's be sensible about this but as we know even running 14 separate claims as part of a group action is going to be um uh, you know complicated, complicated time consuming and expensive yeah exactly. Look, there, i mean there have been a series of claims by groups of franchise by groups of franchisees against their franchisor in recent times you alluded to one that you and i've been working on pretty exhaustively over the last 12 months, and we'll come to some detail about that in a minute. But those sorts of claims are often referred to as class actions, but that's not really correct. In fact, they're group claims. Are you able to kind of comment on, um, you know, where you've seen these types of claims previously? Well, I think the most recent example that you and I have both been involved in relates to uh, a claim by 38 Mercedes-Benz dealers against Mercedes-Benz Australia, alleging bad faith, unconscionable conduct, um, economic duress, concerning the transition from a reseller to an agency model. It's been something which has been fairly heavily um, publicised. That hearing's now concluded in the federal court and the parties are awaiting Justice Beach to hand down his decision. Um, but I guess the point about that is um, that case also proceeded on the basis of a hearing of the claims of five exemplar dealers to determine the sort of primary liability. And if the court finds in favour of the dealers, then there'll need to be a second hearing to determine the question of damages across the the whole of the 38 dealers. Yeah, I mean, and that um, we had five exemplar dealers in that matter. It still took eight weeks to to hear and determine. We pushed it on or the judge pushed it on in a very short period of time. But using a similar maths, even with that limited number of that sample of 14 stores, you're looking at a trial of over six months potentially. Yep. Yep. Which is pretty extraordinary for any business. Um, all right, so are you, um, what are you seeing in terms of that ACCC focus on franchising? Obviously, we've had these two decisions. There has been a lot of new cases brought against the franchise sector in recent times, which is good. But what, what are some key themes you're seeing in this space from a franchising and, uh, perspective? Well, I think the key theme continues to be a concern that franchisors can unfairly take advantage of their superior bargaining position for their own benefit at the expense of the franchisees. I think I'm yeah. seeing that as a key theme. Um, and we've seen the further recent changes to the Franchising Code of Conduct to address this, as well as the ACCC using its resources to hold franchisors to account under the current provisions of the code. And I think the the UltraTune decision is a, is a good example of that, the original decision in relation to the um, failure to disclose properly um, expenses in, in marketing fund. Um, uh, we're also seeing franchisee groups, as we've just discussed, making claims around the good faith obligation in the code and pushing the boundaries of the meaning of that obligation. I mean, the current state of the law in terms of the implied duty of good faith is it's now uncertain. I think there, for, there was a number of years where we just assumed um, or took the view that 
there would be an, impl an implication of the obligation to act in good faith into franchise agreements. Now, of course, it's um, enshrined in the code. Um, and some of these franchisee group claims are a lot about um, uh, making a claim based on that obligation and trying to push it, push the boundaries of what it means. Now, for example, the right of a franchisor to not offer an extension or renewal of a franchise agreement at the end of the contractual term of a, of a franchise agreement is being argued as a breach of the franchisor's obligation to act in good faith. I mean, the law, in my view, is nowhere near that yet, um, but that's now being pushed, and we know that's being pushed in the Mercedes case and in other cases, that there, there, there should be this almost um, automatic right of tenure unless there's some valid or compelling or good reason to not renew or extend the agreement. Yeah, and we're also seeing, and we won't have time to talk about it today, but there's been a real push around disclosure, and there's obviously the uh, the franchise register, um, including quite recently some, you know, uh, changes to the voluntary and mandatory disclosure requirements. It's obviously going to have to be a focus for um, for franchise systems and franchisors, you know, between now and the end of the year, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think the other the other theme that comes through is that the the are taking the view that 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 franchisors should be required to provide much a much greater level of transparency, yeah. particularly when they produce their marketing fund statements, um, and that was highlighted in the retail food group case that's being litigated now and also in UltraTune. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that theme follows through to the push for transparency around rebates received by franchisors that are linked to the sort of volume purchases by franchisees. And, and you're correct around the, um, the, new, um, the new franchise register, which has gone live on the 14th of this month. Um, you know, there's suddenly been some last minute um, changes to the requirements to provide information. There was a series of information that was um, up to as late as last Friday on the 11th of November was voluntary. All those voluntary uh, uh, headings of information or buckets of information have now been changed to mandatory. And uh, God knows what's going on at Treasury, but Treasury sent an email to all mm -hmm. franchisors who had put information on the registry prior to the go-live date, but had elected to tick the voluntary box in relation to that information, telling them that the law had now changed and those buckets of voluntary information were now mandatory. So, you know, I had calls on Monday from clients saying, like, what is going on? I've got this confusing yeah. email from Treasury. Not ideal. Not ideal. All right. Mm. Look, going a little off topic, you've just returned from the International Bar Association conference in Miami, of all places, where I know you met with a large number of franchisor lawyers from around the globe. Were there any hot topics or common issues discussed amongst them, from amongst those lawyers from different jurisdictions? Well, the issue that resonated with me the most was a concern that the industry is becoming overregulated to the point where it's discouraging investment by franchisors or would-be franchisors into franchise networks. And I was talking to our most recent changes to the code, the enshrined requirement to act in good faith, the provisions around end of term and enforceability of restraints, and now the whole um, um, unfair contract terms regime and the and the penalties for falling foul of those provisions, which we know. Um, apply to franchise agreements, and then speaking to a number of the other practitioners, particularly from the US, there was there was some there's some common themes starting to come through. Um, in particular, Lee Play from um, Life Co, one of the, the leading franchise lawyers from the US, um, he said there's a view that in some states there's 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 overreach to the point where it seems like there's a growing view that franchisors should have an obligation to 
underwrite the success of or guarantee the success of franchisees. Yeah. And he, he gave the recent example of um, in California where they are legislating to prohibit entire agreement clauses in franchise agreements. So that's going to mean that there'll be no certainty about the written contract between franchisors and franchisees. And it's going to leave open the ability of franchisees to produce sort of extraneous documents or pieces of paper as evidence of the written agreement between the parties. So he's just saying that's just crazy stuff in their, you know, in their world. He thinks yeah. it's going to um, really discourage investment. Yeah, it's strange when you think about the US is meant to be the leading free market economy of the world. And yet, you know, we saw in the Mercedes-Benz matter just how um, how powerful lobby groups can be and the impact they can have upon some of those concepts. All right, look, that's enough on franchising. Let's uh, let's turn to consumer guarantees, our final topic for the podcast. Um, the ACCC annual report published in October uh, reported on the Commission's continued strong focus on compliance and enforcement of the Australian Consumer Protection Law. The report highlighted a couple of actions taken against retailers, in particular online retailers, for making false or misleading representations in relation to the consumer guarantee protections and also consumer rights to refunds and other remedies for faulty goods. Now, one of the reported cases was an action against Tiger Miss. Can you tell us what happened there, Fiona? Uh, yeah, thanks, John. Look, there have been a number of recent prosecution of retailers for misrepresenting uh, consumer statutory rights and remedies. I think there's a real focus area at the moment for the ACCC. You have, you, there are a lot of cases in this area. Um, in the case of Tiger Mist, uh, the ACCC's concern related to their, in particular their returns page of their website, which included statements such as, uh, if you believe an item you've purchased from us is faulty, incorrect, or you're missing an item, contact us with, with images of the fault. All claims need to be made within 30 days of receiving your order. Now, I guess that looks like a pretty stock standard statement <laughs> about returns. However, um, uh, it was found to be uh, a misleading statement about the consumer's right to return. Um, basically, it, it a consumer, there's no sort of time limit on a consumer's right to return. If a, if a product's faulty, the legislation doesn't say that it has to be returned within a certain period of time. So the statement on the returns page, it said that the item had to be returned within 30 days of the order was misleading the consumer's rights. And that's in the end was the main issue. And that's an, that's an issue that you see in a lot of suppliers' um, terms and conditions and returns policies, that exact same issue. Yeah, particularly when you're dealing with overseas clients, in my experience, they're just this application of um, what they expect the law to be in Australia without any real understanding of what the law actually is. So. Fiona, what did the ACCC have to say about uh, Tiger Miss' website and, and its practices? Uh, the, the ACCC um, examined their their website in detail. It 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 took it said that you know Tiger Miss was obviously a US uh, supplier, and it said, well, look, you're a US supplier. That doesn't matter. You're you're supplying into Australia. You've got to comply with Australian laws. Um, you've got to ensure that you don't misrepresent the Australians' rights to return just because it was a returns policy that might have complied with laws in, in other countries, in particular the US, didn't mean that it complied here and that wasn't sort of any sort of excuse. Um, and the ACCC made very clear that it's looking particularly at online ret retailers. In the case of Tiger Mist, you know, it was supplying sort of young 
young, you know, younger people, younger girls, that's sort of the, their target market who probably don't really understand don't understand their their uh, consumer rights, and that in that case was also pointed out as being a real failure there to make sure, you know, or a requirement, I guess, to take steps to make sure that the consumers were accurately informed of their rights. And in that case, um, you know, Tugger Miss was was uh, ordered to pay two penalties, infringement notice penalties, totaling twenty six thousand dollars, and were also ordered to you know to correct their returns page. Yeah. Um, what I think is interesting, though, is since that one, um, uh, the ACCC now, very recently, earlier, or the end of October, um, instituted proceedings against US-based company Fitbit yeah. for almost exactly the same sorts of issues. In that case, though, the ACCC hasn't gone and issued infringement notices. The ACCC has instituted you know, federal court proceedings with allegations that Fitbit's returns policies and terms and conditions um, misrepresent the consumer's rights of return. So that's becoming a, that's even a more significant um, a, a case. Well, I mean, it's Fitbit's second time um, yep. coming to the attention of the ACCC in the last couple of years. So it's not surprising that they've escalated the enforcement uh, yeah. steps against that company. All and right, well, look, um, Thank you very much both for your contribution um, today and for, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to myself. Our contact details are in the show notes. We also hope you can join us for our next episode in Series 2 of our Watchdog podcast series. If you like the episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to Maddox on the Mic. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to maddox.com.au forward slash podcast to subscribe. If you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed in today's episode, visit the Maddox website, maddox.com.au.